0: Welcome, welcome. We're glad that you're here uh, with us at the Foundry Church today for joining us online. Welcome at your home as well. That's pretty cool. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Joseph. I'm uh, I'm one of the worship ministers here for another week. And after that, I'll be the only worship minister here on staff because in case you missed the news, Aurora and Silas are moving on. They're going to Asheville to kind of step into what's next for them. So uh, I just want to quick plug, A, be here next week. It's going to be a really cool week. And also next Sunday evening, we're going to do like a, like a whole church family, kind of drop by and, and say bye to them and just bless them as they're moving off to Asheville. But for this week, I get to preach and I enjoy it, right? It's something I don't get to do a whole lot of these days. Um, as a quick reminder, if you've never heard me preach or if you haven't heard me preach in a while, I'm a word nerd and I'm a history nerd. All right, so buckle up. Um, no, actually, what's funny is I, I wrote this sermon two weeks ago because I was on vacation most of last week. and I've sent it out to a few people and said, hey, just give me some feedback, you know, what, what do you think? And the only real feedback I got was from Seth, who said, hey, be careful about doing too much history, man. You might lose people. And then, of course, if you were, if you were here last week, he preached a 45-minute history lesson about uh, the church from like Constantine through the the Reformation. But we'll be gracious, okay? We'll give Seth the benefit of the doubt that he just, he knew what he was going to do and he didn't want it to be two weeks in a row of too much history. That's that's what he was thinking about. Um, But we've been in this series called Undo. And kind of the basic premise of the series is that like a lot of what we do as the church, throughout history but kind of in in modern times in the west and in the american church is like maybe we need to undo some of that like maybe it's not the best way maybe it's not the most faithful way to what jesus um kind of called us to we've been talking about what we're calling the temple model which is this idea it's kind of the way religions have worked for thousands and thousands of years Um, there's it's it's built around special places special people special books And it kind of lives around this standard that everybody's trying to meet that nobody can really meet, right? Uh, It it required people to come to a place and like come to uh, God in order to make peace with him. It was very nation specific and it was extremely difficult for people to let go of. The arrival of Jesus though kind of signaled something new, right? Um, When Jesus showed up, he, he initiated more of like a, like a, a covenant of ethic, right? Covenant command ethic, I think is a phrase Seth used. And it's this departure from the temple model. He, he institutes this thing that's, that's not based on um, doing these things, not doing these things, making these sacrifices, but instead it's, it's different, right? It's, it's for everybody, everywhere, and it's different. It's really hard for people to let go of the temple model. And the truth is it's really hard for us today to let go of the temple model, and that's kind of what we're gonna be talking about today. Now, if you think about it, uh, you know this is true, right? Just based on your own experience. You know that, that the way that you were raised, for most of us, is the way in our minds that things should be, right? Um, it, it's not for, for nothing that there's kind of a stereotype that men tend to marry women who are kind of like their mom And women tend to marry men who are kind of like their dad, right? Now that's a very broad brush thing, but in general, I think that's fairly true, right? If you're like most people, the music that when somebody says good music, the music that comes into your mind is the music that you loved when you were in middle school, high school, college age, right? Those formative years. The things that we grew up with are the things that get locked in. And it's kind of the same with our religious beliefs just like everything else in our lives. Whatever you were taught when you were young or when you were young in your faith, if you became a Christian later in life, is kind of the way we, we tend to think things should be. And that's really hard to shake. So we're gonna look at one example of that today. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you got them uh, or open up your app if you're doing it that way to Galatians chapter five, Galatians five. And before we jump in, I think it's important to take a look at the cast of characters that we're talking about today. So, who wrote the book? Starting with the Apostle Paul, right? You know Paul, Uh, conversion on the road to Damascus. He's known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. He took three major missionary journeys. Some people consider him to have taken a fourth, um, but the fourth one was actually when he was going to Rome to be tried and executed. So, I don't know, maybe that counts. Um, He started lots of churches. He wrote lots of letters. In fact, about a third of the books in the New Testament are attributed to being written by Paul. He's an important person in the history of the church. He's writing to the Galatians. Um, There's a little bit of like scholarly debate over exactly who the Galatians were. If we can put that map up. Um, This is a map of like, This is Italy, obviously, and Greece. And this over here is uh, Asia Minor. It's what is like modern-day Turkey. And right here in this middle area, it kind of goes up like this and then curves around like that was the Roman province of Galatia. But what confuses things is that smack in the middle of it like this was the kingdom of Galatia, which was separate, which is just really interesting to me because I'm a history nerd. Ultimately, file that under doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter if it was the Roman province or the kingdom. The fact is that there's these four cities right in the middle. If you, you can see this up on the screen there, Paul visited Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch on all three of his missionary journeys. So it's probably them, right? It's probably who he's writing to. Um, he's writing to the Galatians about the Judaizers, who were this group of people... like the Pharisees in that when we read about them now we like to like villainize them a little bit right they are these bad people who did a wrong thing and somebody wrote a book about it in the Bible they were people who taught that new Gentile believers had to convert to Judaism before they could become Christians now to be fair We're going to try to be gracious to everybody in the story this morning, except the next group. Um, To be fair to the Judaizers, it's not really completely out of left field, is it? This idea, right? The Messiah was this figure in the Jewish scriptures who was the Savior promised to the Jews. And so it kind of makes logical sense that if you want to be saved by the Jewish Savior, you have to be Jewish. And if you're not Jewish, you have to become Jewish, right? It's not like... It's not a super crazy idea. There's some indication actually that this line of thinking was kind of based in the church in Jerusalem, which was led by a guy named James, the brother of Jesus, right? So not James, the brother of John was one of the apostles, but James, the brother of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but if you're a new convert to Christianity and the brother of the Savior says, this is what you have to do, maybe that carries some weight, right? Maybe that matters to you. But compounding all this was this fourth group, the Zealots and the Sikari. I learned so much, I loved learning about the Sikari. Super interesting. The Zealots you've probably heard of, they were um, these religious, and some of them were non-religious but were ethnically Jewish, but they were extremists. Nowadays we would call them terrorists. And they were fiercely devoted to kicking the Romans out of the Holy Land, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. They were said to agree philosophically most with the Pharisees, only they added that layer of like ultra-nationalism and Jewish liberty. They were found in 6 AD. They were pretty active in the decades leading up to the first Jewish-Roman war. Fun fact, one of the disciples Jesus chose to be part of his 12, his inner circle, was named Simon the Zealot. Jesus chose one of these guys to be one of his disciples. Now, it's easy to think, Well, the the Jewish people were like under the thumb of the Romans, like how dangerous could these guys possibly have been? They were bad dudes, right? In the Jewish Roman war, they actually kicked the Romans out of Jerusalem and kept them out for four years from 66 to 70 AD. They were bad dudes. The Sicarii were badder dudes. They, um, They were bad. Uh, uh, Sicari is is plural. It's it's a Latin word for dagger men. Right? This word kind of survives in a couple of languages in uh, Spanish, and I think it's Italian, as the word Sicario. Maybe you've seen the movie with Benicio del Toro. It's basically a paid, hired assassin. The Sicari were bad dudes. They were known to raid and commit atrocities against their own people that they felt like had turned away from like the mainstream of Judaism, or who they thought might be um, collaborating with Rome. It's rumored, um, and it's written in some ancient sources, that they murdered their own high priest and tried to pin it on the Romans in an effort to make the Jewish people fight against the Romans. One account has them, uh, shortly after, the Zealots like, beat the Romans out of Jerusalem. One account has the Sakari destroying the city's food supply so that they could use starvation as a tactic to force their own people to fight and not to just sit back and like, try to negotiate peace. So maybe the Judaizers weren't just mean-spirited uh, elitists, right, who, who wanted to exclude people. Let's assume, let's be gracious, that they genuinely wanted Gentiles to be saved, but also genuinely thought that you had to be Jewish to be saved by the Messiah. And let's assume that at worst, they were in fear of their lives from these people. Because here they are going, well, we're Jewish, but we are departing from the mainstream of Judaism by saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And now here's this group who is murdering people who are not part of the mainstream of Judaism. So you've got Paul, who spent some time in this area preaching the gospel, he's making disciples, he's starting churches, and any way you slice it, he has invested significant uh, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional capital in these people, teaching them about the gospel of grace and about salvation through faith alone. And now here come these Judaizers coming up from Jerusalem up to these churches in Galatia and teaching people that they have to convert to Judaism first in order to be saved He loses his mind, which brings us to the word of the day, apoplectic. Very fun word, apoplectic. It's an adjective meaning overcome with anger, extremely indignant. Used in a sentence, Mark was apoplectic with rage at the decision. Used in another sentence, Paul was apoplectic with rage at how the Judaizers had come in behind him and undercut the message of grace that he had preached to the Galatians, So let's walk through this. Galatians 5, we'll start in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Translation Paul is saying, Hey, morons! Why do you think Jesus set us free? Do you think it's so that we could put ourselves back under the law? Do you think it's so we could indulge in sin and get back into that kind of slavery? No. He set us free so that we would be free. I like sassy Paul. It's our first note of the day if you're keeping notes with us. If your version of Christianity does not lead you to freedom, to greater freedom, you're doing it wrong. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. He goes on in Galatians 5, uh, verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. The unspoken thing Paul's saying here is, who has ever kept the whole law? Who, what, what person has ever obeyed everything in the Torah? There's one, Jesus, but he had a small advantage in that he was also fully God while being fully human. We don't have that advantage, right? He, he's cluing them into the fact that if they go down this road, if they start pursuing righteousness under the Torah, under the law, that they're just making the same mistakes, that people have been making for thousands and thousands of years with regard to how we relate to God. He goes on in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. This is an important sentence right here. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Right? This is a huge paradigm shift for temple thinking in the temple model you you gain or earn righteousness by obeying the law right you do the things you're supposed to do you don't do the things you're not supposed to do you make the right sacrifices you you observe all the right feasts you do everything right but right here Paul's telling the Galatians that they're supposed to be waiting on righteousness to be given to them right this is such a seismic shift Righteousness is not something we achieve, it's something that's given to us by the grace of God. And he tells them that if they, if they put themselves under the law and thereby try to achieve this righteousness on their own, what they're actually doing is cutting themselves off from the only way they'll ever get the righteousness that they're trying to get. This is important. Paul is not anti-circumcision, he's not anti-Jewish. Right, not at all. Because if you remember, Paul was both of those things. Uh, In fact, here's what Paul says about himself. This is in Philippians three, four through six. He says, "If, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless, right? Paul lived in this. He spent the early part of his life before his conversion zealously pursuing righteousness under the law, defending the faith by persecuting the people who were departing from it, who were believing Jesus. His job was literally to round up Jesus' followers and pack them off to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and executed. He writes in one of his letters in the New Testament that every city he went to, he went to the synagogue first. And it was only after he had made everybody there mad enough to want to kill him and run him out of town that he preached to the Gentiles. What I'm trying to say is, Paul was Jewish born, he was Jewish raised, he was professionally Jewish before his conversion, and he never stopped being culturally Jewish. He's not anti-circumcision, he's not anti-Jewish, but here's what he says next. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, i.e. being Jewish, nor uncircumcision, i.e. being not Jewish, has any value. He says it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not Jewish. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So he's like, oh, you're super Jewish. Nice to meet you. How's your faith expressing itself through love? Because that's what matters. Oh, hey, you're extra Gentile. Pleased to meet you. How are you loving the people in your life? How are you stewarding creation? This is your second note if you're keeping up at home. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Y'all, maybe this is some of the reason why a lot of people resist the church, right? Maybe this is some people, uh, the reason why some people resist the gospel or resist us. Maybe it's because we have resisted this. Maybe it's because we have resisted this idea. Maybe it's because we're still clinging to some temple thinking that says, well, sure, grace is good. Love is good. Faith is important. But what we really need to do is make sure people know that they're sinners. We really have to make sure that people know how bad they are and how much they have to change if they want to be one of us. We really have to make sure they understand and think about the Bible exactly like we do because of course we're right and of course everyone else is wrong. That's temple thinking. And the problem is, and this is what Paul is fighting against, is that that idea represents Christianity and, right, Christianity and Judaism, Christianity and temple thinking, Christianity and the law, Christianity and legalism. He says this a little later in verse nine, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Paul knows that just a little bit of of temple thinking, a little bit of legalism, a little bit, a small dose of the wrong thing can corrupt the whole thing. And here's the extent of Paul's apoplexy, okay, in verse 12, as for those agitators, as for those Judaizers, as for those people preaching circumcision, I wish they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves, right? He's saying, he's saying, uh, if if you're going to go down the circumcision route, don't stop there, go all the way so that you can't procreate and your bad ideas will die with you. He's angry. He's frustrated because he knows what temple thinking leads to. He knew because remember, it was his life. It's what he lived leading up to his conversion. He knew that temple thinking leads to leaders who become self-righteous, followers who become hypocrites, texts being manipulated, and people being mistreated. If you think about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees in the gospels, he addresses all of these things, right? In Luke 18, he tells a parable about um, a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee is very ostentatious and showy and self-righteous. He even says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. That's how self-righteous he was. The tax collector just said, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. He was humble. And Jesus said the tax collector went home justified before God. The Pharisee did not. In Luke 12, uh, Jesus is addressing a very large crowd and he warns them to be on their guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. See, Jesus seemed concerned that the followers of these people would become hypocrites like they were. In Mark 7, uh, Jesus condemns the Pharisees for manipulating the law, right? There was this law uh, all the way back in in Exodus that says honor your father and mother. The Pharisees were taking another law and, like, twisting it to get out of honoring their father and mother so that they could keep the money and the resources that should have gone to taking care of their elderly parents. They were manipulating the text, and the people being mistreated were their own parents. This is your third point, if you're keeping notes. If we cling to old things, we will miss the main thing. If we hold tight-fistedly to what we've always known, what we've always been taught, the way it's always been, the way things always were, we just might miss the main thing. And what is the main thing? Paul goes on in verse 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another, how? Humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is fulfilled. He says, man, we're called to be free, but use your freedom wisely. Don't use it to indulge in sin, because that just leads right back into slavery, to sin. Choose door number two, in which we serve one another humbly in love. Because if we're serving out of a sense of superiority, right, out of a sense of, uh, well, I'm righteous, I'm holy, and these lowly heathens need my help. Right? That's, that's not serving humbly in love. That's not faith expressing itself through love. That is self-righteousness expressing itself through hypocrisy and manipulation. And, and here's the ironic part. There's one thing that, that could have and should have, like, informed this whole discussion for the Judaizers. And Paul tells them this. He, he's like... You've had the secret the whole time, right? All the way back in Leviticus 19.18. He's like, this is part of the law that you're trying to get people to keep, but you're not keeping it. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Paul's like, you had it. It was there. It was there all along, and you just didn't do anything with it. It's like in uh, The Wizard of Oz, right? I'm, I'm going to assume that most of us, probably all of us in this room, have seen The Wizard of Oz at this point. Um, a quick refresher, I guess, or for anyone who hasn't seen it, Dorothy Gale uh, is a Kansas farm girl, and her house gets picked up by a tornado while she's in it and whisked off to the magical land of Oz, where it lands on top of the Wicked Witch of the East. A good witch named Glinda shows up and um, it's kind of weird, but gives Dorothy the witch's shoes, the, the ruby slippers, and, uh, and tells Dorothy, follow the yellow brick road all the way to the Emerald City. There you'll find Oz the Great and Powerful, the wizard who can send you home. All right. so along the way, Dorothy meets some friends. She gets into some dangerous and, frankly, sometimes hilarious hijinks and um, uh, ends up eventually facing the Wicked Witch of the West, who is the sister of the Wicked Witch of the East and blames Dorothy for her house falling, even though obviously Dorothy's not in control of where her house falls, right? Uh, Dorothy ends up vanquishing the Wicked Witch of the West, and she and her companions go to the wizard, who they find out is just some guy from Kansas or Nebraska or something. I don't know, he says he's from Kansas, but his balloon says Omaha. You tell me how that works. And, um, and he ends up kind of flying away, And Dorothy's there, and the good witch comes back, and she's like, Dorothy, if you want to go home, just click the heels of your ruby slippers together three times and say, there's no place like home. These are the same ruby slippers, mind you, that she has been wearing the entire time she's in Oz. From the very moment she got those shoes, had she known, she could have clicked her heels together three times and said, there's no place like home, and been right back home. The whole movie could have been like 20 minutes. And Paul is saying the same thing to the Jewish people who are telling the Gentiles that they had to convert to Judaism first. He's saying, you you already knew this. This was there the whole time. This idea of faith expressing itself in love towards the people in your life has been there from the beginning. The idea of a faith that says, I don't have to stay in this temple way of thinking. I don't have to hold tightly to these behaviors or those standards or that law because I trust God. I trust his judgment. I trust his mercy. I trust his authority. I trust his love. I trust his motives. And because I trust him to ultimately sort out justice and mercy and salvation and eternity and judgment and all these, all these big issues that are beyond my power, all I have to do is focus on the main thing, which is just loving people to the best of my ability. If your version of Christianity doesn't lead to freedom, you're doing it wrong. And if your freedom doesn't lead you to focus on the main thing instead of clinging to the old things... You'll never be able to express your faith and love towards others. And isn't this the example we see in Jesus? (laughs) Right? Paul wrote about Jesus in Philippians 2 6 through 8. He writes, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Y'all, Jesus was willing to undergo the most horrific circumstances imaginable because he knew that somehow that would enable us to be made right with God. Somehow that would allow us to step into a new paradigm where our righteousness is not based on what we can do, but it's, it's just his righteousness that he gives to us. It's a new paradigm that frees us from the burden of the old temple way of thinking and allows us to breathe the free air of a life spent loving others selflessly. And when we understand this, when we get this right, we'll see people differently, right? We'll, we'll pray differently, we'll see sin differently, we'll treat people better, we'll be more grateful both to God and to the people in our, in our lives around us. We won't walk through life trying so hard to like, maintain and protect and hold on to what we have, but rather we'll live our lives open-handed. Rather, we will understand that the only thing that truly matters is my faith manifesting itself in the way that I love other people. People don't resist this movement of God that we call Christianity in the church, they don't resist that because we love Jesus. People resist Christianity, they resist church, they resist this movement of God, frankly, because of how they've been treated by the people of God. What if we changed our way of thinking from asking whether or not we're doing all the right things, not doing all the wrong things? Are we policing other people well enough in how they do the right things? What if instead we just ask the question, what does love require of me in this moment? Can I tell you something? Can Can I let you in on the secret? Just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, just like the Judaizers that Paul wrote to, just like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz, this isn't a new thing for us. This is not like an out of the blue change. This is something that's been there all along. It's just that we've allowed the old to blend with the new. We've allowed uh, some yeast to work its way through the dough, so to speak. We sometimes answer that question of like, you know, the question, what does love require of me? We sometimes answer that with a bunch of convoluted nonsense about how sometimes it's really more loving to condemn people. Jesus answered that question by going to the cross by giving of himself sacrificially. He answered that question by loving unconditionally. He answered that question by inviting his followers to participate in that death and in that resurrection. Through baptism and through this meal we call communion so that we can also participate in his resurrection. And right now we just wanna invite you into that moment. As we eat the bread and as we drink the juice of communion, Spend some time asking God, God, what what is it that you are asking of me in this moment, in my life, in my family, at my job, in my neighborhood, in my church? Ask God what it is that he's saying to you and what it is that he wants you to do about it. Uh, We have communion stations on the sides of the room uh, if you need it or want it, there's a gluten-free station in the back. If for whatever reason you're unable to get to one of those stations, just raise your hand and somebody will bring it to you. Um, there's a few people in the back. If you need or want some extra prayer, if you want somebody to pray with you or pray over you, we'd love to do that. We'd love to. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll give you some space to respond as you feel led. Father, we thank you so 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 much that our righteousness does not have to be based on anything that we can do because we know that we can never do it we thank you that through Jesus you are inviting us into a new way of relating to you that's based on his goodness his power his mercy his love And God, we just ask that you would show us the areas in our lives that we are clinging to the old, that we're clinging to the way things always have been, we're clinging to the way things uh, were taught to us, and thereby missing the thing that you're trying to do in us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the invitation to participate in that. And so right now as we eat this bread and as we drink this juice, God, we do it in his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.